Praise the Lord. God bless all of you. So good to see everyone in the house of the Lord today. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to call out in the name of Jesus in just a minute because he's worthy and because he has everything that we have need of today. Amen. Uh, I'm expecting great things in these services today. I really am because Jesus is here, period. Jesus is here, folks. Amen. I don't know if that excites you, but that excites me. I love being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Amen. Because he has what I need. He always has exactly what I need. Right when I need it. Amen. He saved my soul. He healed my body, my mind, my spirit. Amen. He made me a new creature. Praise God. I have a lot to be excited about this morning. All I have to do is think for just a minute. Any one of the miracles, any one of the the, the awesome things that Jesus did for me. And then I consider, what has he yet in store for me? What does the future hold for us, folks? We haven't seen anything yet. We haven't. We haven't seen anything yet. The best is yet to come. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. I'm looking forward to being right in the middle of what Jesus wants to do. Amen. Let's call out in his name. Let's call out in his name in faith. Believing that he is going to do wondrously and gloriously here this morning. Jesus, you're an awesome God. You're a glorious Savior. I heap glory and honor unto you. Worship and praise unto the Almighty. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You and you alone are worthy to receive all worship and all praise. To receive all glory and all honor. Hallelujah, Jesus. We exalt you. We laud and we magnify you. I am so excited. I am so thankful to be in your presence this morning. What a hope we have in you. What a promise we have in our Savior today. Hallelujah, Jesus. We stand on your covenant promises today. We stand upon your word today. We may not feel the best. We may not be uh, 100% here this morning. But your word says that whatever we have need of, we find in you. Your word says that if we'll ask, we'll receive. If we seek, We'll find. If we knock, the door will be opened unto us. So today, Lord Jesus, we're asking and we're seeking and we're knocking to receive of you your good things today. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, that we'll reciprocate this morning, that we'll, uh, we'll worship you and we'll be thankful unto you. We'll minister unto you this morning with our worship and with our praise and with our giving of thanks unto the Lord our God today, for he is good. And his mercy endures forever. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have in store for us here today. Thank you, Jesus, for your manifest presence here this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for your great goodness unto us. All these things we ask, all these things we pray in your precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Amen. By way of review, last week we talked about the nobleman whose son was sick unto death. The week before that we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well. Both of them had needs. Both of them had different social standings, for sure. The Samaritan woman toward the bottom, 
the nobleman probably upwards toward the top. But it didn't matter to Jesus where their social standing was. All that mattered to Jesus was two things. One, they had a need, and two, they had faith in him. That's all he responded to, and that's all he responds to today. It doesn't matter who you are, how much or how little power you have, where you come from. None of that matters to Jesus, except that you have a need and that you're turning to him to meet that need. That's it. Once those two conditions are met, Jesus comes running, folks. Amen. No matter the resources we have at our disposal, we'll eventually find ourselves in a place where we're powerless. I don't care how powerful a man or woman you are. You can have hundreds of billions of dollars. You can have numerous political connections. But at some point, you're going to face a situation that you can't handle. It wouldn't have mattered in the nobleman's case if he had all the power in the world, all the money and resources in the world. His son was still sick unto death, and there was nothing any of that power or any of that wealth could do to to fix that. Nothing. His son was going to die regardless. But then he heard that Jesus was in town. He knew enough about Jesus. He didn't have a personal relationship with him that we can see, but he knew enough about him that this man can heal my son. So he made it his mission in life to go see this man. He made a beeline for Jesus. He purposed in his heart to get to Jesus, to get Jesus to come and heal my son. He was even able to weather the seeming harsh response that Jesus gave him, and he continued pressing Jesus for an answer. We find in our own lives that sometimes Jesus' answer is right when we want. Sometimes he does not. Sometimes he delays. Sometimes he waits. As in the case of Lazarus. But no matter when Jesus answers, it's always the right time. He's always right on time. And sometimes the answer is what we're looking for. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is wait. But again, whatever the answer is, it's the right answer. When Jesus speaks... When Jesus speaks, all of creation reorders itself around those spoken words. We can't underestimate, we can't overemphasize the power and the authority that are in the words of Jesus Christ. When he speaks, folks, things have to happen. Natural laws rewrite themselves. Time and space reorder themselves. Matter and energy reorder themselves according to the words of Jesus Christ. So when we turn to him with our needs, and he speaks a word into that situation, folks, you can rest assured that that matter is taken care of. Our daily devotions, we preach, teach, and practice miracles, signs, and wonders here. I hope you realize that. But it's not the signs that we're seeking. We're seeking Jesus Christ. We're seeking the one who gives those, who works the miracles. So why, why the signs? We want to see them manifested because they confirm God's word. And they cause people to be drawn unto him. That's it. They're not meant to put on a show. 
put up flyers and, and Facebook ads. Come and see the miracles. That's not it. Jesus isn't some sideshow circus freak. He's not. That's not why he does it. He does it so that men and women everywhere will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, they might have life through his name. Period. Day one spoke about hometowns. It's sometimes hard when you're growing up with someone, you know everything they did, everything they didn't do. It's hard to, to let them grow up and become an adult and become responsible. I think of people I went to Bible school with and some of the things that we did in Bible school. I wouldn't tolerate those things today. I simply wouldn't. But that was another person in another time. He was a lot less mature than he is today. And if we know of of things that people did in their childhood or in their teenage years, uh, we see them today with responsible positions and doing great things for God. (laughs) If I told you some of the things that happened in Bible school and told you who did those things, You'd look at them differently, but that's not who they are today. They're doing great things for God today. They're mightily used of God today. When Jesus went into his hometown, all they could see was the little carpenter boy. Why should we listen to this guy? You grew up with us. We know you. We know where you're from. We know your family. Take people for who they are today, not who they used to be. Many people in our world today, they too, know about Jesus. They've heard of him from people they know. They've heard about him on the television, on social media. What kind of information do you think they're getting about Jesus? Probably not the right information. Talk show hosts. Very few of them, though, that know about Jesus actually have a relationship with him. How well can I get to know someone by reading about them or hearing about them on the Internet? I can't build a very close relationship with someone reading social media posts about you. How effective is my judgment of someone going to be in that case? When all I'm getting is someone's opinion of you. We've got to have a relationship with Jesus Christ ourselves. Day three, some people define faith as believing in something you have no reason to believe in. That's what a lot of secularists like to claim faith is. That faith takes over when reason ends. And yet people, even those that define faith that way, exercise faith every day. I get up in the morning expecting my employer to be there. I expect my employer to be solvent and needing me to come to work. I don't know that when I get up in the morning. How could I prove that? I can't prove that. I just have faith that that's the case. 
Every time I sit down on a pew, I don't, I don't test it. I don't put various loads on it to make sure it'll support my weight. I just sit down as if it's going to hold my weight. We have faith in these things because we have good reasons to. Good reasons to. Our faith in Scripture, our faith in God is a reasonable faith. And that's before we see one sign or miracle. And since we're talking about faith before we move on, our faith is in the Word of God. Our faith isn't in answered prayers. Our faith isn't receiving the miracle. Our faith is in the Word of God. The covenant promises He's given us. The one who gave us that promise. More specifically, our faith is in Jesus Christ. The words that He spoke. Day four. The noblemen as well as the centurion were able to trust in the words of Jesus without needing immediate proof. The nobleman especially. His big thing was if I can get Jesus to come to my son. And have Jesus touch him and pray for him. He'll be healed. That was where his faith was. If I can get Jesus there, my son is good. He's healed. But Jesus gives him an entirely different answer. Go your way. He's healed. I'm not going to come to your son. I'm going to heal him from right here. But the nobleman, we find, he didn't, yeah, but... Are you sure you don't want to come? Are you, can't I just, let's make sure. None of that. The Bible says he won his way. Trusting in the words of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 8, 8 uh, reveals a similar situation. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Again, the words of Jesus are powerful, folks. Every word that drops from his mouth is powerful. We can trust in them. Day five, our entire being should reflect what Jesus has done in our lives. The way we carry ourselves. The way we live, the way we conduct ourselves ought to reflect our God. It ought to reflect who we serve. Are we calm under pressure or do we cook? Not easily provoked or unsettled. Encouraging to those around us. The way we carry ourselves matters, folks. It's a testimony as to who we serve. It's a testimony as to who we are. The way we speak. Do we speak with grace, seasoned with salt? Do we speak well of others, speaking grace and healing into other people's lives? Are you someone that you would want to emulate? Amen. We have to conduct ourselves in a manner that demonstrates Jesus to this world. Our scripture text for today is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We're starting a new uh, series here on God's holiness. Today's lesson is titled, God's Holiness and Ours. God's Holiness and Ours. Isaiah 6, starting with verse 1, states this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has, has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, I'm sorry, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Amen. He walked deliberately across the courtyard, reveling, though he wouldn't admit it, in the gasps of recognition that followed. Do you see who that is? It can't be. This isn't a feast day. What is he wearing? He had to work to keep from smiling. As he approached the temple doors, his stride lengthened and quickened, even as his mood grew darker. The priests and Levites milling about the entrance were not used to seeing anyone hurrying into the temple. Their glances of puzzled annoyance quickly froze into horrified stares as they grasped, grasped what was actually happening. Your Majesty, uh, where are you going? He's wearing an ephod and carrying incense. Quick, someone find the priest, Azariah. How dare they detain him, the king? Not since the days of the great King David had the Philistines been brought to heel, nor since the days of Solomon had the name of the Judean king been so widely known and praised. He couldn't help but glance over at the corner tower of the city wall, capped with a brand new catapult that gleamed fairly in the morning sun. His chest swelled with pride. It was high time someone put these uppity priests in their place and showed them what it meant to be a king. He burst through the doors of the temple with his head down. The priests of the attending Levites scuttled out of his way. He stopped short with a startled gasp of his own. There stood old Azariah, eyes blazing, jaw firmly set. Behind him stood a group of priests with equally determined faces. No one moved as king and priest glared at one another. It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, growled Azariah, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you've trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Enraged, he took one threatening step forward, then he felt the oddest sensation, like a hot iron had touched his forehead ever so briefly. The skin felt suddenly dry. He wiped his hand across his forehead and felt dead skin flake away. He broke out in a cold sweat. The priests rushed forward. Strong hands grasped his arms and carried him off his feet. He opened his mouth to shout, Unhand me, I am the king! But the words died in his throat. He was no longer the king. He was now a leper. Amen. Bit of a dramatized event of... Scripture events. King Uzziah is the classic Old Testament illustration of the corruption of power. For many, many years, he was a good king, a very good king. He served the Lord in verity and in truth. He was submitted and humble unto the Lord his God. He did what the Lord required of him, asked of him, and the Lord consequently blessed him. Gave him victory over his enemies. Prospered him. Caused him to grow. Second Chronicles 26, 3 through 15 kind of chronicles briefly this series of events. 
16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 2 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. That's a good statement right there. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And he went forth and warred against the Philistines and break down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebneh and the wall of Ashdod and built cities about Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians that dwelt in Gerbaal and the Menuhims. And the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah and his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt. For he strengthened himself exceedingly. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. Also, he built towers in the desert and digged many wells, for he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains, husbandmen also, and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. Moreover, Uzziah had an host of fighting men that went out war to war by bands, according to the number of their account, by the hand of Jehiel, the scribe, and Maasiah, the ruler, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The whole number of the chief of the fathers of the mighty men of valor were 2,600. And under their hand was an army, 300,000, and 7,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Uzziah prepared for them throughout all the host shields and spears and helmets and habergeons and bows and slings to cast stones. And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Uzziah had the second longest reign of any of the kings of Israel. Manasseh had the longest at 55 years. His reign was marked with unprecedented peace and prosperity. He had victory over all his enemies, historic enemies, such as the Philistines and the Ammonites. And all of this obviously was in place because of the greatness and the intelligence of King Uzziah. Obviously. Because the, the chronicle continues in verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priest, the leprosy even rose up from his, in his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold, he was leprous in, in his forehead. And they thrust him out from thence, yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. There are many examples in Scripture of people starting off good, people starting off well when they were small and humble in their own sight. They did well. They sought the Lord their God and received help of Him. But when they were lifted up with pride and vanity and arrogance because of the blessings of God, because of the prosperity that the Lord had given them, 
It was to their own destruction. We see in the case of King Saul, I mean, Uzziah had a perfect example to follow here. King Saul did the exact same thing. He offered a sacrifice unto the Lord that was not his to offer. What happened to King Saul? He was rejected. He was cast aside and replaced with King David. Isaiah 14 chronicles another event like this, the first event like this, verses 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. The more we desire to exalt ourselves, friend, the farther down we're going to be cast. Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. 1 Timothy 3:6 says, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. In every single instance we see in Scripture, every single example we see from the lives of those who followed this path, we see that pride is not good. Pride is something to be abhorred, something to be run from. Pride in what, folks? Pride in what? It was after this account that we see God speaking with Isaiah. We see a stark contrast here between man's destructive pride and the interrelationship between humility and holiness. Humility is a bad word in our society today. Submission, obedience, these are evil words. Scripture speaks very highly of them. The Lord speaks very highly of them. When we approach the Lord our God, it ought to be with humility. When we become lifted up with pride, folks, we have no hope. There's no hope for the man who is proud and haughty, who is arrogant. Although it's not explicit in the text, it's reasonable to assume two things that's going to shape our understanding of of Isaiah's vision here. First, this account is a report of Isaiah's initial calling as a prophet based on his confession of sin. We believe that this is his initial calling as a prophet of God. Second, this vision took place within the precincts of Solomon's temple since the seraphim took a coal from the altar to cleanse Isaiah. Again, these are not explicitly stated. Uh, They are assumptions that are made based on the text. But even though Isaiah's location is ambiguous, he clearly saw the heavenly throne room where God sat in royal council. First, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Second, Isaiah saw the the train of his robe filled the entire temple. 
Now the train, I've heard preached and taught, is thought to be a representation of the king's victories in battle. Others disagree with that. But in any case, what we see here is this train filled all the way to the roof of the temple. It filled the entire temple. The first awe-inspiring event in Isaiah's vision is quite simply the size. Standing in the temple, Isaiah looked up and saw the exalted Lord seated on a high throne in his heavenly realm. His figure is so large that the train from his robes was as tall as the temple itself. Isaiah saw here what God later declared through him in Isaiah 66.1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. That's the God that we serve, folks. He is as close as the mention of his name. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is all of these things, and I am so very thankful for that. But the Lord is strong and mighty. He's high and he's lifted up. He's huge. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. How much less, Solomon said, this temple that I have built. In addition to that, Isaiah sees six winged seraphim who were apparently serving as throne guardians or throne bearers. The word seraphim is derived from the Hebrew word seraph, which means to burn. So seraphim would be burning or fiery ones, indicating the blinding brightness of their appearance. These seraphim cried continually in Isaiah 6, 3, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So loudly, in fact, that Scripture records the posts of the door moved at their voice. The tripled use of the adjective holy indicates the Lord's holiness is unsurpassable, that he is the holiest being, that he is perfect and pure. He is the very definition of what it means to be holy. Also observe that these bright, fiery beings use two of their wings to cover their faces. Is it possible that their, their exceeding brightness was far surpassed by the divine glory? Isaiah 6.3 continues and says, The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 63.15 says, Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? The habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. They are somehow intertwined. They are somehow interconnected. Holiness and God's glory. We see other examples in Scripture of human beings getting a glimpse into the heavenly realm. 2 Corinthians 12 talks about a man that Paul knew in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. 
marvelous things, terrible things that he couldn't speak about. Revelation 1, 12 through 17, the Apostle John turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle, and his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. There's something about divine revelation throughout Scripture that leaves humanity dumbstruck, awe-stricken, and rightly so. It's not clear that any of these figures would describe their encounter with God's holy glory as exciting or even pleasant. The seraphim surrounding the heavenly throne were at best bizarre and at worst frightful in appearance. Understand that although seeking to see the Lord for who he really is is a noble goal, it's never been an encounter that was sought lightly. In fact, in most of our biblical accounts, the encounter was never sought after at all. Why? Because to commit to seeing God as he is, is a commitment to total transformation. You cannot remain the same when you see God as he truly is. You can't. You must be changed. Later on, we'll talk about Moses' encounter with God's hinder parts. The very smallest aspect of who God is that caused his face to shine with the radiance of the sun. You can't remain the same. You can't see God as he truly is and remain as you are. The cries of the seraphim were so continuous and so loud that the heavenly temple was being shaken. Similar to Exodus chapter 19. We read in verse 16, It came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and the thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Isaiah also notes that the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah 40, starting with verse 34, says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We see also in Second Chronicles chapter 5, after Solomon had dedicated the temple, that it came to pass, that it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. 
Amen. So Isaiah comes into this, this encounter with this divine council, the Lord at the head. He sees the, the divine brightness and glory. He hears the seraphims right by themselves declaring the holiness of God so loud and so continuous that the doors of the, of the temple shake, the posts shake. The smoke fills the whole place. What is Isaiah's response to all of this? What else could it be? What else could, how else could you respond to this? Isaiah 6, 5, then said, I woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have every confidence that Isaiah thought in this moment that I am going to die. I believe that with all my heart. It doesn't say it in Scripture, but I believe that. He thought he was going to die. My eyes have seen the king. I have to die now. Didn't God tell Moses, no man can see me and live? Isaiah knew that. And now I'm seeing him. Uzziah had only trespassed the physical temple. And he was struck with leprosy. I'm trespassing into the very throne room of God. In the presence of God's awesome holiness, Isaiah had a renewed sense of his own sinfulness. Before the divine holiness, before his awesome majesty, in the presence of God's moral perfection and absolute beauty, all Isaiah could see was his own corruption. I remember the first time I came into the presence of God. And God gave me godly sorrow under repentance. I remember how that felt. I remember the feeling of being in his presence as I was a sinner. Without hope. Unless, unless God forgave me, I was without hope. I remember feeling like that. I remember, I remember all of it. I can only imagine that Isaiah felt something similar. I'm standing in the presence of, of absolute holiness, absolute righteousness. In God's presence, what else could we see? When the seraphim came toward Isaiah with a burning coal, it's very possible he thought that this, this angel was sent to finish him off. He's coming to kill me. Let's, let's get it over with. In the Old Testament, fire was generally seen as a symbol of divine wrath. But rather than destroy Isaiah, he used this burning coal to gently touch his mouth, pronounce him forgiven and purified. thing that was supposed to be used for judgment was being used now for purification. And why was he forgiven? For the simple reason that he acknowledged his sin. Woe is unto me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips.
His forgiveness was in response to Isaiah's humble confession of sin and his contrite heart. Forgiveness in this sense could be understood as the outflow of divine holiness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. That verse always amazes me. How could my forgiveness be just? How is that justice? Again, someone slaughters my family, and he confesses it, and the judge just forgives him, and he walks away scot-free. How is that justice? justice because it was paid for. Someone did pay the price for that. Someone did pay the price for my sins, and it was Jesus. He paid the price. So now, he can forgive, and he can do it legally. He can do it justly. Praise God. This is an awesome verse, folks. He is just to forgive us our sins. The Lord calls Isaiah And here we witness a fundamental shift in Isaiah's relationship with God. From sinful outsider to holy insider. He was now positioned to hear the deliberations of this divine counsel. Isaiah 6.8 Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. First of all, this question wasn't addressed to Isaiah. It was addressed to the council. Second of all, Isaiah wasn't really a part of this council, was he? Or was he? Well, Isaiah seemed to think he had a say in the matter, because he's the one that spoke up. When I was first starting in the, the command post in the Air Force, I was, it was, uh, it was, a pretty, it was a pretty powerful position for a, for a lowly E-5. Because I got to tell uh, light colonels, if a general came on post and he wasn't authorized, I could tell him to get out of my command post. I was authorized to do that, unless he had written permission from the wing commander. So, when I was first... When I first started actually doing the job, that was that was weird for me because when I was in the army, the captain was way way up there. I mean, I didn't talk to the captain. I didn't want the captain talking to me. Captain had business to do. I had something else to do. I wanted nothing to do with that. So now I had to deal with all of these O fives, O sixes. And uh, I didn't know it, but every week I had to give a, a brief to all of the senior leadership on the, on the base. And I felt that first meeting probably like Isaiah felt right here. I am way out of my depth here. This is way above my pay grade. But then the wing commander said, 
What do you got for us? I gave my report. I gave it professionally. I gave it well. I received good comments from it. But what I felt in here was something else entirely. This, this is not where I'm supposed to be, but it was exactly where I was supposed to be. I was called there by the wing commander himself. I was supposed to be a part of that meeting. Even though I didn't feel like I was worthy to be breathing the same air as these guys, I was supposed to be there. I had a place in that council. And I was expected to speak up and, and give my opinions, and, and I was even expected to question things. I learned a lot with those things. It was a good experience for me. But when God qualifies us and he transforms us, he calls us into his presence. That first, that first time I entered into the presence of God, I was an outsider. I was a long ways off. But now I'm brought nigh by the blood of Christ. Now I am his son. I'm his child. Now I have free access to his throne room. And he wants me. He bids me to come. And you. He bids you to come. We are supposed to be there. We are a part of this. Amen. Other instances we read in Scripture of this divine counsel. In Genesis 18... We see that God includes Abraham in his deliberations regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. I've always found that fascinating. Why would the Lord include Abraham? Because he's an insider. He has a relationship with God. In 1 Kings 22, starting with verse 19, we read this. And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. This is an excellent example of this divine counsel. Because of Isaiah's new status, he was now allowed in to the divine discussion, as it were. He was allowed to speak up and state his opinion. I'm here. Send me. And God did. God did exactly that. Sometimes we have a, a desire, part of our old nature perhaps, we seek to be called before we've been cleansed. And we seek to be cleansed without making full confession. When we enter into the presence of God, and we see God as He really is,
when we enter into his presence in prayer, how we approach him matters. And we've talked about this before. How I prepare myself to enter into his presence. How I prepare myself to receive from him. Prepare my heart. Prepare my mind. It's not a light thing to enter into the presence of God. If we were to enter into the the presidential suite, it wouldn't matter who was president, that would be an awesome thing. Again, when I was in the command post, I got to land Air Force One. And uh, the command post was designated as as a safe spot. If anything ever happened, they'd rush the president in there. So I had guards upon guards upon guards, and I, me, was the only one that was allowed to be in there. I got to meet the president, George W. Bush, H.W. No, W. W. Got to shake his hand, got to talk with him. Folks, that was an awesome thing. The only reason I bring that up is because as awesome as that was, entering into the presence of God is so much more awesome. It's so much more awesome. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't come into the president, presence of the president with a tank top and spandex. Hey, yo, what's up, B? I wouldn't do that. Who would do that? But sometimes when we enter into the presence of God, we have a very cavalier attitude. We have a very familiar attitude. And again, I understand he's, he's my heavenly father and, and I'm his son. And, and we have that relationship. And, and he calls me no more servant, but friend. I understand all of that. But he's still God, folks. He's still high and lifted up. He's still sitting on the throne. And so when I approach him and I see him as he is, how can I do anything else but approach very softly and very humbly into his presence having properly prepared my heart. I should, be, I should be taking this very seriously. Entering into the throne room of the King of Kings. Into the throne room of His holiness, His, his, his righteousness, His glory, His majesty. And if, if I can continue to see Him like that, If I continue to see him cavalierly, if I continue to see him down here with me, just one of the boys up here, well, it's no wonder why I don't have faith and trust and confidence in him for getting my needs met. Why would I? But if I see him way up here, if he's lifted up, in my soul, if he's lifted up in my mind, it's very easy for me to trust in him. The God that sits upon the throne, the God who is high and lifted up, it's very easy for me to trust in that God. I can trust in him for anything, but I've got to see him for as he truly is. He's not... not all of these other things. He's the Lord God omnipotent. And when I approach him, 
when I, when I enter into the burning light of his countenance. It's difficult for us sometimes to expose ourselves to that. Not that we have a choice anyway. He sees us as we are, whether we expose us ourselves to him or not. Whether I open up myself and become transparent in his presence or not. But that will determine how I move forward with a relationship with him. If I'm transparent and open in his presence, and I allow him to search me, I allow him to move through my heart, my mind, he can help me, he can shape me, he can transform me, he can heal me. He can make me to become like he is. But if I close myself off and I hide parts of myself, and I keep parts of myself from him, You all have had relationships before, probably, where that someone has done that with you. Maybe you've done that with others. It generally doesn't go down too well. I feel like you're, you're closed off with me. I feel like there's a wall there. When I enter into the presence of God, I need to do so completely. I need to do so willingly, having properly prepared myself. It's not something that we take lightly. At least it ought not be. Because he's God. Amen. In conclusion, none of us enjoy having our faults exposed. Author Scott Mautz asserts that we are actually neurologically wired to fear criticism in much the same way that we fear failure or change. Even happy people are four times more likely to remember criticism than praise, and experts say it takes our brain at least five positive events to make up for the psychological effects of just one negative event. No wonder we are so adverse to the Christian discipline of confession. Logically, why would we, so afraid of being found weak and imperfect, openly share our own weaknesses and imperfections? But confession is a core Christian discipline. We are commanded by Scripture, confess your faults one to another, the key distinction from the practice of confessing to a priest, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. James 5.16 The idea that confession is part of worship is important, though difficult to grasp. This difficulty may be related to abuses of the practice in other faith traditions. However, the self-revelation of God we experience in worship calls us to be likewise self-revealing, authentic, open, and brutally honest. God cannot be honored by a veneer of high-sounding words and beautiful phrases covering over a heart roiling with all manner of evil thoughts and desires. Confession is, in a sense, an automatic spiritual response. Any glimpse of God's holiness and righteousness shows us in the starkest of terms, our own sinful misdeeds, which we must either confess or ignore to our own detriment. God will not compel confession, just as he will not compel any aspect of worship. But as beings created for worship, it is our most natural reaction to the touch of God's holy presence. Confession is worship's crucial turning point because it opens the path to forgiveness and cleansing. Without it, we remain trapped in our self-deception that we are fine. And there can be no saving transformation or divine intervention. 
confession is the admission of need that provides God a path for the demonstration of his power. We will not appreciate the richness of divine grace and mercy unless it is preceded by a sense of the awful reality of divine judgment on sin. Worship is the only safe context for acts of confession. It is in worship that our innate fears of criticism and exposure meet the assurance that the one we worship is holy and gracious, just and merciful, righteous and loving. Our wrongdoing will become reconciliation. Our sinfulness will be consumed by his holiness, and our cries of woe will be turned to calls of service. Amen. Let's all stand. It is difficult for us to acknowledge our own weaknesses, our own needs, that we don't have it all together all the time, that maybe I am having a bad day. It'll get better. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It always does. But right now, I'm going through a battle. Right now, I'm going through a circumstance, a situation. Please pray for me. There's nothing wrong and everything right with that. If things aren't going well, telling everyone that things are going well is not true. It's, can I say it, a lie? Now, you don't have to confess everything to everyone. Please don't do that. But for those that you do trust, those that you have confidence in, that, that, that can pray, talk to them. I'm struggling in this area. Hey, I've, I've got a need. I'd like you to pray for me. Man, that's awesome. Absolutely. I'd love to pray with you about that. I'd love to help you in any way I can. Praise God. God's here to help. Your brothers and sisters are here to help. We're a family. Amen. Praise God. Let's all pray. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I am so thankful for you, thankful for the word that you've delivered unto us this morning. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we enter into your presence, as we continue to enter into your presence with worship and with praise, with thanksgiving, entering into your presence for prayer, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see you or as you truly are, that we would see you high and lifted up, that we would see your glory, your splendor. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. You're most certainly not hanging on a cross anymore. You are the king of glory. You are high and lifted up. You are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. We exalt you. We worship you. We praise you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you bless the remainder of our service, that we'd receive of you all that you have in store. These things we ask in Jesus' name.